Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question today. Have you ever been upset by losing something? Something that you cherished? Something that was close to your heart? Something that you need right away, like maybe your car keys? I know that when we lose things, it's a frustration and it's emotional and we've all been there. But you know, we used to have a, an employee in our family business and she had a curious habit. Whenever we lost something or whenever she did, she had a little formula that she would recite that she said helped her find the lost item. And she would say, little infant lost and found. And she said it referred to the time that Jesus got lost at the temple. It didn't even seem to matter to her that he wasn't an infant at the time. But if we ever misplace something in our business, she would say, say little infant lost and found and you'll find it. And we kind of laughed at her. But when we found our item, she would come up to us and she say, you said it, didn't you? I know you said it. And it kind of became a private joke between us. And then a few years back, Rick and I were directors of a Bible camp in the North Interlake region. And our summers had crazy hours, long days, and we had about 75 to 80 campers a week and about 30 staff. And the staff often switched on the weekends. So we ran it with army rules. Everybody needed to know their role and what was expected of them. One late afternoon, the entire camp was out participating in wide games. So this is individual and team events that just burned off some energy for them. And as it was wrapping up for the day, the campers all came into the lodge getting ready for supper. And a counselor came to me and she said she had a problem. One of the campers had asked her at the beginning of the games, would you look after this ring for me? And it wasn't her ring, it was her grandmother's ring that had been gifted to her. So the counselor agreed and slid it on her finger and took off out into the field. Well, the ine inevitable thing happened. In the midst of the games, the ring slid off her finger unnoticed and was lost. So I knew how it felt to lose an heirloom like this. I had been gifted my great aunt's wedding ring. And even though it was too big for my fingers, I insisted upon wearing it. And one day at work, it too slid off my finger unnoticed and I never found it again. So I was determined to find this young girl's ring. As everyone filed into the lodge for supper, I headed out to the field and I started walking a grid of the field looking from left to right. It was a vast field, probably 10 to 15 acres, but thankfully the grass had just been cut and I was stubborn and I kept at it. About 40 minutes later, my efforts paid off. I saw a little glint of gold down in the blades of grass and I found the ring. I went back to the lodge, I presented it to the camper. She was so relieved, but I think the counselor might have been even more relieved because she had been entrusted with it and had failed. Rick looked at me and he grinned and he said, you said it, I know you said it, didn't you? And it reminds me that things have the potential to kind of def define us. We let them remind us of good things, of bad times, of loved ones, of painful situations. And to an outsider, the relevance of this specific item is probably impossible to determine. In fact, we might even be a little bewildered at how important this thing is to someone. But the connection is real. According to online statistics, we spend an average of two and a half days every year looking for lost items. Number one on the list is our TV remote. Number two is our phone. Number three is our car and or our keys. Four is our glasses, then our shoes, then our wallets or our purse. And over the years, I have misplaced lots of things. I've misplaced my keys, items of jewelry, lots of umbrellas, sunglasses and gloves, and I even lost my passport last year in Cuba.
And I myself have been lost. I went away on a grade school weekend trip and we did orientation, which obviously I didn't do well at because I was lost in the woods until late in the night when I was found by my teachers. So we all know the feeling that we get in the pit of our stomach when we lose something. When we lose a friend or a job or a cherished item or a necessary item or even our dignity. It's unsettling to us, it's sad, it's nerve-wracking, and there's something inside of us that motivates us to fix the situation. If we lost a friend, we do what we need to do to reconcile, to bring that friend back. If it's something physical that we lost, we spend lots of time and energy looking for it until we find it. And this is part of our makeup that reflects the image of God, for God is a God who seeks. Now today we're going to look at a trilogy of parables in Luke 15 that are probably very well known. We can read right over them and not even stop to notice any of the details, but there's something to be said about lingering over scripture and allowing ourselves to see some of the subtleties in the story. I'm going to start with verse in Luke 15. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. As I read these verses, I'm picturing a sheepfold in the middle of open country. It's got some walls to contain them, and it's got a door that shuts tightly to keep the predators out at night. And there at the gate is a young shepherd, and he's counting off his sheep as they come into the fold for the night. He's been with them all day out in the fields, leading them to pasture, ensuring that they were safe, and now it's time for rest. So as each sheep passes through the gate, he counts them off with his staff. He has to pay close attention. They're not in a single line. They come in as a flock and they're jostling and shoving to get through the gate. And it makes me think of rush seating at a concert. So he knows if he loses his concentration, if he yawns or blinks or gets distracted, they could go by and he would lose his count. So he's paying attention. 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. They're all in the fold, but he's only at 99. Had he missed one? Was there a little one that kind of squeezed in and was a little lower and he missed it as it went through? Now, if it was me, or maybe if it was you, you would say, well, maybe I just missed one. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm, they're probably all there. Or maybe we would rationalize and we would say something like, well, even if I missed one, I still have 99. There's only one missing. That's only 1%. Like, how important can 1% be? And I think back and I remember it took a long time for anybody to ever stoop down and pick up a lost penny on the sidewalk. We would bend over for a dime or a quarter, but a penny? Who cares about the 1%? And in today's world, the 1% is so irrelevant, the government doesn't even make pennies. And the banks don't accept them and our receipts are rounded up and rounded down. No one cares about the 1%. So maybe we would say, I should be grateful I have 99 and then just curl up for a good night's rest. This shepherd, however, cares about the 1%. He will not settle for 99. He takes his staff and his lantern and he held, heads out into the fields to look for the one that is lost. There's just one sheep who has wandered away. 
Maybe he saw something on the far hill that looked intriguing to him, but quite likely he just kept his nose to the ground and followed the scent of the sweetest grasses and didn't pay attention to where he was going. And then, maybe at sunset, at the end of the day, he finally looks up, he's all alone, he's vulnerable, and he's a little confused, he doesn't even know where he is, but the faithful shepherd kept seeking until he was found. Jesus relates the lost sheep to the lost sinner who repents, and he states emphatically that his or her repentance was cause for great celebration in heaven, because our God is a God who seeks those who wander away, even the 1%. Let's move on to verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here we have just three short little verses that tell a common tale. A woman perhaps living on the verge of poverty Maybe the month lasts longer than the money. It's a hand-to-mouth existence. She has 10 coins. There's no bank account. There's no safety deposit box. There's no investments in mutual funds or GICs. There's no government social assistance programs to help her out. There's no mention of a second income, maybe an employed husband, or children who work and help support the family. For all we know, she is single or widowed or divorced but she has 10 coins, all of her worldly possessions. And one day the unimaginable happens. She counts them again and finds only nine. Imagine the panic. You live hand to mouth and all of a sudden 10% of your resources are gone just like that. And we see this scenario repeating over and over in the pandemic of 2020. Statistics from government websites state that less than two-thirds of Canadians have savings enough for three months should they lose their job or face economic hardship, and the, the rate is much lower for single women. 27% of Canadians borrow money just to buy food or pay for daily expenses. So when we see mass layoffs, families and singles are plunged into econo economic hardship overnight. So many people would identify with the woman in this parable. But she doesn't despair. Instead, she lights a lamp and goes to work searching for her coin. She looks into the corner dark parts of her home. She gets her broom and sweeps the dirt floor, hoping that just on a chance the coin had fallen through the cracks somehow and got mixed up in the dirt. And she perseveres until she experiences victory. She finds her coin and a celebration is in order. And once again, Jesus relates the story of being lost and found to that of a sinner who repents and the resulting celebration in heaven, because our God is a God who seeks those who somehow fall through the cracks, and he's concerned with everyone, even the last 10%. The third parable completes Luke 15 and is the very familiar story of the lost or prodigal son. We're going to read part of it. We'll start in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in riotous living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, one of the first things that jumps out to me in this trilogy of parables is the escalation of the impact of the lostness in each story. We begin with the loss of 1%, one little sheep out of a flock of, nine, a flock of 100. And there it escalates. Now we've lost 10% of our resources, one coin out of 10. But here in the lost son, the loss is magnified again and so much more personal. We have higher stakes. 50% of the treasured item is at risk. 50% is lost. We see an arrogant son hell-bent on getting his own way. He ignored all cultural protocol and demanded his share of the estate. How inappropriate. But we know an attitude like that doesn't develop overnight. It reflects a pattern of behavior. And I think anyone who is a parent knows that this father would have known that his son was on a selfish and foolish path. And he probably would have known to hand over the money would just accelerate his son's self-destruction. But he did it anyway. To deny him probably wouldn't have made much difference in his destiny. So after a lengthy period of time away with riotous living, the son finds that he's lost his money, He's lost his party friends, he's lost his income, his health, and even his dignity. Here he is, a young Jew, sent out to feed the pigs. And the regrets start to bubble up inside. Looking back over time, he realized what he has sacrificed. He's now starving, broke, and broken. He is lost indeed. And so he begins the long walk home, wondering if his father even wants him to be found. Verse 20 tells us, oh yes, his father wanted him to be found. He saw him while he was still a long way off. Perhaps the father stood at that window every day waiting to catch a glimpse of his son. And he was filled with compassion, not filled with lectures, not filled with I told you so's, not filled with rebukes, but compassion. And doing something that no normal Jewish father would do, he ran to his son and threw his arms around him. It didn't matter that his son was outright rebellious. It didn't matter that he had taken liberties he never should have taken. 
It didn't matter that he broke the rules and he flouted the law and he lived like a pagan sinner. All that mattered was that he was lost but was now found. And once again, a celebration was held. Our God is one who seeks those who are lost due to rebellion. I love these parables, especially when I have the opportunity to teach them in prison to the inmates there, part of our course on forgiveness. But one of the biggest obstacles to this material is that the disbelief of the men and women inside that God is actually seeking them, that he actually cares about them and he wants them to be found. They often believe that their crimes have defined them. But we get to share the amazing truth that they are so much more than the worst thing they have ever done. Now let's be clear, I know and they know that they were lost or still are lost because obviously they're in prison for a reason. And that testifies to their poor choices and the trajectory of their life. And often they've lost more than their freedom. They may have lost their jobs, their families, their standing in society and even their health. So there's no need to press with these people the fact that they're sinners. Unlike our neighbors who live good lives and would be shocked if we thought that they were sinners, these guys kind of get that. And as we look at the parables, the question becomes, what's your story? So I ask them, are you someone who fell through the cracks? Perhaps your parents were unable to care for you and provide for you. Maybe they were dealing with so much of their own stuff that they had no energy or resources to nurture you as a child. Maybe you felt all alone insignificant and ignored. Maybe you landed in foster care with these feelings only intensified. Maybe you also fell through the cracks in school where no one took the time to make sure you were coping with your studies and with life in general. Is that your story? Did you fall through the cracks? Or are you someone who wandered away? Maybe you had parents and a grandparent who took you to church, who taught you to pray at bedtime, who loved you well and cared for your soul. But you found yourself making one little compromise after another, maybe to be accepted, maybe because society was distracting you in some way, maybe for selfish reasons. But step by step, you wandered away from home, like the sheep with his head to the ground, not noticing his environment. And all of a sudden, maybe it was the day you got arrested, your eyes open up, you realize where you are, and when you look back, you see how each little compromise compounded until you were in a place that you didn't even recognize, and you're not sure you even know the way home. Is that your story? Did you just wander away somehow? Or are you the rebel? Did you go through life with a chip on your shoulder and a determination to set your own path? Perhaps you were never interested in listening to advice or learning from your mistakes or paying attention to what others thought. Maybe you were driven by the allure of money and you would do anything it took to get it. Maybe you were driven by your lusts or your pleasures or your greed. Perhaps your rebellion was even disguised by a veneer of a good life, but your secret life was marked by pride and rejection of God. Is this your story? Are you an outright in-your-face rebel or a in-the-shadows kind of subtle rebel? And I love asking these questions and having the opportunity to reinforce many times it doesn't matter to God how you got lost. All that matters is that you are lost. God will never stop seeking you. 
There is no one insignificant in God's economy. No one is beyond redemption. And this is a message of hope. The temptation, however, is to believe that this message is for those people, the lost, the rebellious, the sinners, the prisoners. It's easy to take an us and them position, but Jesus does not allow us to do that. When we look at the context of these parables, we see the true stripes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of their day. They're on the fringes of the crowd watching Jesus teach the people, and they are disgusted that the crowd is filled with tax collectors and sinners. And they mutter to each other in verse 2, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How despicable. How undiscerning. How dare he? And the parables that Jesus says are a direct response to their attitude. Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, stated, self-righteousness is the worst enemy of all because you can't see your own sin. The truth is, I could be here today dealing with my own lostness, whether a rebellious streak in my heart or a compromise that has led me far from God's will or sinful results of falling through the cracks somehow, maybe not being engaged in a healthy way with the family of God. My lostness could be rooted in pride and self-righteousness, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I could meticulously obey the laws of God, but forget to love the stranger, the foreigner, the vulnerable, the outcast. I could pray the Lord's Prayer every day, but not do my share to ensure that His will is on earth as it is in heaven. I could march in a rally with placards calling for the government to deal with those people. I could pretend to care about inequality, but use every loophole there is to safeguard my, my wealth, my status, and make sure that it's not negatively affected. I could constantly compare my obedience and righteousness with other people's sin. I could condemn, judge, write them off, and still pretend to be a follower of Jesus. And so could you. We could cover up all this corruption of our heart with good works, church attendance, volunteering, politeness, or any other positive social construct, but we would still be lost. Jesus declared there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Is he inferring that there's actually people who have nothing to repent of? No, he's referring to those who are self-righteous, those who believe they don't need God because they're good enough. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, those self-righteous people. I came to call the sinners. The good news for the prisoner is also the good news for the church member. Our God is a God who seeks. He is seeking those who, like the old hymn says, have hearts that are prone to wander. He is seeking those who have fallen through the cracks in some way. He's seeking those whose actions and attitudes reveal the seeds of rebellion. And he's calling us to fresh repentance and a fresh start. He's not only waiting at the window for us to return, but he's also dealt with our problem of sin and rebellion by sending his son to die on the cross in our place and take our punishment. This act was not only extremely costly, but it was demonstrated while we were still sinners, while we were lost in the field, while we were filthy, starving, feeding the pigs. Our God will pursue you and me tirelessly 
because we are his beloved, his treasure, more valuable than a lost sheep, more valuable than a lost coin, more valuable even than a lost golden ring in a field. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he's calling each of us today to be found. Today is the day to stop wandering and come home. Let's pray. God, we praise you for being one who cares about everyone down to the last 1%. We thank you that you put such value on us that you would give your son to redeem us. I pray today we would examine our hearts, that we would discern, discern if there's any rebellious streak in us, to discern if we have compromised and wandered, and that you would do business with our hearts and welcome us home again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.